One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, all, it's Jacqueline from Hiatus. As promised, I am bringing you episodes of other fantastic podcasts that are helping to unscrew the sexual culture. And the first one I want to bring is from a show that I actually featured last summer on hiatus as well, uh, which is called Boom Lawyered, the legal show hosted by Amani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo at Rewire. It's an awesome podcast in general, and it's a really fun, fresh way to get all of your legal news, especially but not exclusively having to do with reproductive justice issues. But the episode I'm bringing you this time is from a special miniseries they did called We'll Hear Arguments. And it's all about Roe v. Wade and how that case actually went down. The arguments made in the Supreme Court in the early 70s are shockingly similar to the battle lines that are drawn today. And so if you want to understand anti-choice strategy or the basic legal reasons that we have a right to choose a pregnancy, these arguments are essential listening. And Jess and Amani are the women to tell you about it. They are two of the most well-versed legal experts on abortion rights in the country. And they're also simultaneously kind of hilarious. Mystery Science Theater 3000 meets the Supreme Court. So if that piques your interest, you're definitely going to like this episode. Um, So this is just the first episode of the series. I think there were four episodes, if memory serves. So if you like this, it's called We'll Hear Arguments. And you can find it, I'm sure, on any podcast app as well as on rewire.news. And if you like Jess and Imani from We'll Hear Arguments, you should listen to their regular podcast, which is called Boom Lawyered. Without further ado, enjoy their show. You know what I love, Imani? What's that, Jess? A good courtroom drama. You mean like my cousin Vinny? Did you say Utes? Yeah, two Utes. No, I mean, yes, I love that movie with every ounce of my being. And do you remember L.A. Law? Right of assembly. Does that count by anything or not? Well, I guess some people just don't like nudist colonies in their community. Okay, boomer. (laughs) Just (laughs) kidding. I totally watched L.A. Law as a kid. What about Boston Legal? I used to love James Spader's closing arguments. They were spaderific, if I may coin a term. It would have been so nice if the police had actually gathered evidence for the purpose of arriving at a conclusion instead of supporting a preconceived one. Don't you agree? Objection. That is stricken. I will seek counsel in chambers. That's a fun one, too. But, Amani, what if the greatest courtroom drama was right in our own backyard? Ugh, there are so many streaming services, Jess. Which one do I need to get now? None. I'm talking about in real life, right here, in the real world. 
Hmm. Well, if whatever you're talking about were to qualify as a courtroom drama, they'd have to talk about murder. Well, could the state of Texas say that it is for the benefit of the health of the wife they kill the husband? And sex. Probably with some shame mixed in. I think she makes her choice prior to the time she becomes pregnant. There would have to be some humor, including some colossal goofs. Your Honor, it seems to me that the physical act of being born, I'm not playing it down, I, but what changes? Is it a non-human and changing by the act of birth into a human? Well, that's or been the theory up until now it, in the law. It, it, what about a sexist antagonist? Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. And most importantly, a hero! Someone who makes great arguments and stands up for the people the system beats down. So a pregnancy to a woman is perhaps one of the most determinative aspects of her life. It disrupts her body, it disrupts her education, it disrupts her employment, and it often disrupts her entire family life. She should be allowed to make the choice as to whether to continue or to terminate her pregnancy. Hey, I know that voice. That's Sarah Weddington, the Texas attorney who argued on behalf of Jane Roe, a.k.a. Norma McCorvey. That's her in Roe versus Wade at the Supreme Court. I still cannot believe that she was only 26 at the time. And that sexist antagonist? That was Jay Floyd who defended the Texas abortion ban the first time Roe was argued in 1971. His half-baked joke is considered one of the most offensive moments in Supreme Court history, and he made it with his very first sentence. And it's wild that Roe was argued twice, once in 1971 and again in 1972. And the guy who defended the Texas abortion ban the second time, Robert Flowers, he was the guy who tried to imply that being born is like totally no big deal. <laughs> Okay, so what you're telling us is that Supreme Court arguments are some serious real-life courtroom drama. And that's especially true when they were arguing Roe versus Wade and basically every reproductive rights case before and since. We've got to bring these arguments to life, Jess. We should dissect them. We should debate them. We should celebrate the brilliant moments. And definitely cringe at the worst ones. Okay, spoiler alert. That's why we're here, Imani. What? Welcome to our new podcast series that will do all of the above and then some. Think of this show as Mystery Science Theater 3000 meets our regular podcast, Boom Lawyered. There's so much to learn from what happened at the Supreme Court and so much to unpack. We're going to walk you through all of it, one crucial moment at a time. I'm Jessica mason Piclo. I'm Imani Gandhi. As legal journalists at Rewire.News, Jess and I have covered more about abortion rights in the courts than anyone else anywhere else. We couldn't be more excited to bring you this new series. And now, we'll hear arguments. Of course, we'll hear arguments. We'll hear arguments. We'll hear arguments. We'll hear arguments. We'll hear arguments, number 18, uh, Roe against uh, Wade. Welcome to our new series, where we bring Supreme Court arguments to life and put them in context. Each season will focus on one case. And for season one, of course we had to focus on Roe versus Wade. So here's how this series works. Roe was argued twice, in 1971 and 1972. 
That's because there were only seven sitting justices the first time, and there was a ton of disagreement on how to proceed. So they did it all again after Nixon added William Rehnquist and Lewis Powell to the court. We're going to jump back and forth between the two sessions as we break down the arguments. That's for two reasons. One is that a lot of the arguments from one session relate so closely to the ideas in the other that it's important to tie them together. And the other is that, honestly, Supreme Court arguments and questioning aren't always super organized. They can be messy and all over the place, especially when the attorneys arguing the case for Texas didn't seem to know what they were even doing there. They were like, what? What? Where am I? The Supreme Court? Crap. I better argue some stuff then. I mean, Jesus, these dudes are something else. But never fear. Jess and I are going to cut through the BS and get to the nugget of these legal arguments. How does that sound to you, Jess? That sounds amazing, Imani. Before we get into the constitutional nitty gritty, we should explain exactly what Roe v. Wade was about. Ooh, I know this one. It was about abortion. Jess, it is way too early in the episode for you to be this way. (laughs) But yes, it was about abortion. Specifically, the lawsuit challenged a Texas statute that criminalized abortion by prohibiting any person from performing an abortion by using drugs or medicine or from using any violence to procure an abortion. There was one narrow exception. A person could perform an abortion if the abortion was needed to save the life of the pregnant person. Now, the penalty for violating this statute was two to five years in prison or double that if the abortion was performed without the pregnant person's consent. Now, this is pretty noteworthy given the penalties that some states are trying to enact today, like capital punishment or life imprisonment. And Texas's primary defense of the law centered on one idea, that a fetus is a person and therefore the state has an interest in protecting it. And Everyone in the courtroom was obsessed with the concept of personhood. A person, 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 a person, not a person, 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 not person, 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 person. So that's what we're going to focus on in this first episode. The intense debate in Roe versus Wade over whether a fetus is a person under the law. Well, I don't think a fetus is a person. But I'm not the final arbiter of these things, even though, let's be honest, maybe I should be. (laughs) That would be a little document called the Constitution. So what does it say? How does the Constitution define the concept of person? That's exactly what Justice Potter Stewart asked Robert Flowers in 1972. He was the Texas lawyer defending the law. To be more specific, Stewart basically tried to stunt on Flowers. And, well, listen for yourself. Do you know of any case anywhere that's held that an unborn fetus is a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment? No, sir. We can only go back to what the framers of our Constitution had in mind. Well, these weren't the framers who wrote the 14th Amendment. That came along. No, sir. Uh, I understand, but the Fifth Amendment. Uh, under the Fifth Amendment, no one shall be deprived of, of rights to life, liberty, and property without the due process of lawful. Yes, but then the Fourteenth Amendment defines person, and it defines person as somebody who's born, doesn't it? I'm not sure about that. No, it does. Right. Any person born or naturalized in the United States doesn't. I suppose that's not a definition of a person, but that's a definition of a citizen. Oh, my God. Jess, can you imagine being a Supreme Court justice? I can, actually. Okay, me too. But can you imagine being up there lording over the land with your unparalleled knowledge of the Constitution and then completely getting the basics wrong in front of a full courtroom? (laughs) 
<laughs> Seriously, I cringed. I'm still cringing. But also, to be fair, this is a sticky wicket because the Constitution talks a lot about persons, but defining them is another story. Okay, then let's put on our Sherlock Holmes caps and dig in. Justice Stewart really seemed to believe that the 14th Amendment was the key here. So what does the amendment say exactly? It's a little clunky, but stick with me. Here's what Section 1 of the 14th Amendment says. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So that means if you're born in this friggin' country or naturalized in this friggin' country and you're subject to this friggin' country's laws, then you're a citizen of this friggin' country and of the friggin' state in which you live. You serving as the Constitution's anger translator, Amani, is just what this podcast series needs. Happy to serve. (laughs) But why don't you continue with Section 1 of the 14th Amendment? Okay, it says... No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. States basically have to leave citizens the hell alone. (laughs) You can't deprive them of life, you can't deprive them of liberty, you can't deprive them of property, and you have to treat them equally dag nabbit. Another important detail is that the 14th Amendment is one of the amendments known as a Reconstruction Amendment. As you can probably guess, that's because it was passed during the Reconstruction era at the end of the Civil War. I'm also going to go out on a limb here and say that it's one of the most important constitutional amendments we have. As a black woman, it's certainly one of my personal favorites. After all, it's got the Equal Protection Clause in it. And who doesn't love the Equal Protection Clause? Besides, like, white supremacists and other assorted racist assholes. But the 14th Amendment also made federal due process guarantees apply at the state level. In other words, state laws can't violate your right to life and liberty. The Constitution protects you from losing your life, liberty, or property rights without quote-unquote due process. Due process is lawyer speak and means that the government can't, say, throw you in jail without going through certain procedures like letting you know what charges you face and why. That's because putting someone in jail deprives them of their liberty. They can't go live life the way they were living before jail. So the 14th Amendment guarantees that states have to follow certain procedures before stepping on your constitutional rights. That's the due process clause. It also says that laws have to apply to all people the same. That's the Equal Protection Clause. The law is supposed to treat everyone equally. Okay, Jess, so when does the 14th Amendment kick in? What do you mean, when does the 14th Amendment kick in? Like, when does it kick in the door like the Kool-Aid man? Oh, yeah, I'm the 14th Amendment. (laughs) Amani, it is too early for you to be this way. (laughs) Touché. So when I ask, when does the 14th Amendment kick in, I mean, at what point in a person's existence does that person have 14th Amendment rights? That's what we're trying to figure out. Jess, please don't turn this into a whole who's on first debacle. I really won't, I swear. Then take us through the 14th Amendment closely again to find out when it kicks in. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like the Kool-Aid man? Exactly. So there are two concepts here. First is the idea that anyone born in the U.S. is a citizen. That's important. 
That first sentence in the 14th Amendment clearly says that when you are born in this country, you have rights. Birth is the constitutional marker here. Cue Jim Halpert stare directly at Donald Trump, who has threatened to end birthright citizenship via executive order, as if he can just change the Constitution willy-nilly. But we digress. After that first sentence, which establishes birthright citizenship, there are two clauses that talk about due process and equal protection rights. Those clauses don't use the word citizen. They use the word person. And that's what trips Justice Stewart up. The 14th Amendment talks about persons, but it doesn't define them. Well, what about Texas law? Does Texas law have anything to say about persons? Justice Stewart wondered that same thing. Does Texas law in other areas of the law uh, give rights to unborn children in the areas of trusts and estates and wills? Or in no, the Your Honor, only, only if they are born alive. So there was nothing to point to in Texas law that gave any alive, breathing person rights to the unborn. Okay, then. So what would it mean if a fetus is a person under the Constitution? That's what Sarah Weddington was asked to wrestle with in 1971, and it kind of goes to a dark place. Listen. If it were established that an unborn fetus is a person within the protection of the 14th Amendment, you would have almost an impossible case here, would you I not? would have a very difficult case. You certainly would. Uh, this would be the equivalent to after a child was born, if uh, the mother thought it bothered her health having a child around, she, was, uh, she could have it killed. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Oh, come on! Couldn't Weddington have pushed back a little or something? Couldn't she have said something like, hey man! That's a little callous to equate pregnant people in need of health care to a mom just offing her eight year old. <laughs> Couldn't she have said something? Anything. Seriously. I mean, on the one hand, this is a tough idea to concede like that. It hurts. But on the other hand, from a purely constitutional perspective, she kind of didn't have a choice but to concede Stewart's point here. If the court were to declare a fetus to be a person under the 14th Amendment, then the abortion equals murder framing becomes possible. Maybe, but maybe not. Weddington conceding the point that she wouldn't have a case may have been true in 1972, but that's not necessarily true today. Wait, why is that, Imani? Because in the words of one Mitt Romney, corporations are people too, my friend. And that is my best Mitt Romney impression. It is very dull. Because Mitt Romney is very dull. <laughs> oh, yes. Citizens United. Boo, Citizens United. Boo, bow down to the queen of filth, to the queen of slime, to the queen of muck. Boo, boo. <laughs> okay, well, I boo. Why don't you take a brief aside and explain what Citizens United is? Citizens United versus FEC is the 2010 Supreme Court decision that declared corporations are people under the Constitution. And because they are people under the Constitution, corporations have certain constitutional rights like the right to free speech. It is a bonkers, terrible decision. But it's not just Citizens United. It's Hobby Lobby, too. Ugh, another bonkers, terrible decision. Okay, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, the 2014 case where the court decided it's hunky-dory to allow corporations to take on the religious beliefs of their human owners because, Imani, if a corporation has free speech rights, it definitely has religious rights, too. Brick-and-mortar buildings can believe in Jesus, too, Jess, and I feel like 
You're infringing on my sincerely held religious beliefs that corporations have religious rights, and it just, like, it hurts my feelings. Amani, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I really appreciate you calling me in like that. It, it's a new year, and I'm really striving to be a better person. <laughs> and so even though I might think it's ridiculous— under the Roberts Court, brick and mortar buildings can believe in Jesus. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, but I'm confused about what Citizens United and Hobby Lobby has to do with declaring a fetus a person under the 14th Amendment. I mean, how does any of that work, Amani? So, before Sarah Weddington's colloquy with Stewart, that's the moment where she conceded that she would have a difficult case if fetuses were determined to be persons under the 14th Amendment. She had an illuminating back and forth with Justice White that pushes back against the suggestion by the justices that if a fetus is a person, she loses her case. Well, what if a, would you lose your case if the, if the fetus was a person? Then you would have a balancing of interest. Uh, well, you still you have anyway, don't you? Excuse me? You have anyway, don't you? You're going to be balancing the rights of the, of the mother against the rights of the fetus. For decades, anti-abortion advocates have believed that declaring a fetus a person would trigger a balancing of interests that would benefit the fetus. And that's BS. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're still arguing over whether a fetus is a person. Remember, the Constitution opens the door. Eh, I'm not so sure it does, Jess. At least not according to William Blackstone. Wait. Amani William Blackstone? Nobody is going to know who that is. And honestly, what does William Blackstone have to do with any of this? So Billy Blackstone. Billy Blackstone! <laughs> what? <laughs> Billy Ray Blackstone? You don't know Billy Ray Blackstone? <laughs> he, he performs in the Ozarks, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he does. <laughs> Catch him at Sturgis. <laughs> So Billy Blackstone is kind of a big deal, Jess. He's one of those really important white dudes from the 18th century. You know, the ones who wore the wigs and the tights and those pilgrim shoes with the big buckles. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically the granddaddy of black letter law. Now, without boring you with a history lesson about ye old English law... <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that Blackstone believed that a living, natural person is a person. The idea that a fetus is a person would have been foreign to him. And the idea that a fertilized egg is a person? Yo, Billy Blackstone would have been like, what? 
So what you're saying is that the Constitution doesn't exist in a vacuum. Part of the reason it doesn't define person is because it was self-evident to leading thinkers like William Blackstone that you're only a person when you're born. So there was no need to talk about fetuses at all. Exactly. If the Supreme Court were to decide that everything from fertilized eggs to a fetus on the verge of shooting out of the womb are persons, then the court has created a new category of person. Just like the court did in Citizens United when it decided that corporations were persons for purposes of the First Amendment. Right. Or when the court decided in Hobby Lobby that corporations have religious rights. So basically, fetuses are corporations. That's the takeaway. (laughs) I mean, kind of. From a legal standpoint, fetuses are more like corporations than they are like people. Look, it's a weird thing to say, I know, but think about it. Rights attach at birth, meaning all the rights in the Constitution and natural law and wherever the hell else rights come from... Those rights attach when you are born, not when you're conceived, not when your mom and your dad lay down by the fire to make sweet love. (laughs) A fertilized egg or a fetus doesn't have the right to free speech or the right to be treated equally or the right to bear arms. But what if they did? What if they did what? Had the right to bear arms? Jess, are you asking me what if fetuses had the right to bear arms? <laughs> like, what if there were a gang of fetuses getting into a shootout in a bank, like in Heat, you know? A little Al Pacino fetus is having coffee in a diner with a little Robert De Niro fetus. <laughs> and like, you know, the bank robber fetuses are having a shootout with the cops that are also fetuses. And everybody's bearing arms. <laughs> oh, God. Now I can't stop thinking about a bunch of fetuses getting into a shootout at a bank. Look, Jess, in this gun-loving country, anything is possible. Okay, let's get back on track here. So fetuses weren't considered people back in the olden times, and creating new kinds of persons is really problematic. So then Texas must have had a good argument for why a fetus should be considered a person. You would think, and that's what Justice Stewart wants to know from Robert Flowers. You heard a bit of this in the intro, but here's the whole back and forth. Well, generally speaking, I think you've agreed that up until now, the test has been whether or not somebody's been born or not. And that's the word used in the 14th Amendment. Yeah, sure. Just a quick pause to note, Flowers just agreed that up until now, the law has only ever applied to alive, breathing people, not fetuses. But let's continue. That's what would keep a legislature, I suppose, from classifying people who've been born as not persons. Your Honor, it seems to me that the physical act of being born, I'm not playing it down, but what changes? Is it a non-human and changing by the act of birth into a human? Well, that's been the theory up until now in the law. Well, in other words, it has been the theory that that we have deriving from non-human material a human being after conception. Well, Your Honor, uh, that's that's the reason I asked you at the beginning. What... uh, Within what framework should this question be decided? Should it be a, a theological one yes. or a philosophical one or a medical one? Or are we confined here to dealing with the I think, Your Honor, that the court... Constitutional meaning of it. I wish I could answer that. I believe that the court must take these uh, the medical research and apply it to our Constitution the best it can. Okay, this is bananas. First of all, Stewart is right. Being born is an important marker in terms of being a person, and Texas was asking the court to change that. Also, 
It is remarkable that the state of Texas was asking the Supreme Court to declare a fetus a person, but couldn't point the justices to a path to do so. Remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> like I said in the beginning, these dudes are kind of terrible at this whole oral arguments before the highest court in the land business. Flowers' argument boils down to lawmakers in Texas believe life begins at conception and that a fetus is a person, so you folks figure out the rest. And if the court doesn't want to answer the question of who is a person under the Constitution, Flowers offers up an alternative, which, yikes. Check this out. But I find no way that I know that any court or any legislature or any doctor anywhere can say that here is the dividing line. Here is not a life and here is a life after conception. Perhaps it would be better left to our legislators. Uh, There they have the facilities to have some type of medical brought before and the uh, opinion of the people who are being governed by this. Well, if you're right that an unborn fetus is a person, then you can't leave it to the legislature to play fast and loose with that in dealing with that person. Thank goodness for Justice Stewart here. I mean, let's sit with Flowers's argument for a minute. He thinks it would be just fine to let states decide on their own who is a person and who is not. State lawmakers! Now, I know some excellent people who are state lawmakers, and every single one of them would tell you there is no chance, not a single chance, they should be making that kind of pronouncement. And being a person isn't a state-by-state inquiry. Take Flowers' logic to its ultimate conclusion, and it would be possible to be a person in Texas, but not in California. That is constitutional chaos and not how it works. In both the 1971 and 1972 arguments, Justice Thurgood Marshall really challenged Texas to justify its definition of a person. Here's an exchange between Marshall and J. Floyd in 1971, where Marshall presses Floyd to show his work, so to speak, to support the claim that life begins at conception. We say there is life from the moment of impregnation. And do you have any scientific data to support that? Well, we begin, Mr. Justice, in our brief with the the development of the human uh, embryo, carrying it through to the development of the fetus from about seven to nine days after conception. Well, what about six days? We don't know. But the statute goes always back to one hour. I don't, uh, Mr. Justice, uh, it's, there are unanswerable questions in this field. I, I... That's just an incredible flame out by Floyd at the end there. He's got nothing. Nothing. And in 1972, the justices would press Robert Flowers on this same point. Justice Marshall asked Flowers if there was any medical consensus on when life began, and Flowers' answer blows my mind. Now, you're now quoting a judge. I want you to give me a medical, recognizable medical writing of any kind that says that at the time of conception, the fetus is first. I... Do not believe that I could give that to you uh, without researching through the briefs that have been filed in this case, Your Honor. I'm not sure that I could give it to you. Seriously? Flowers actually said he'd have to read the briefs and get back to him on that, which, really? Don't you think that's something you should have had an answer for before you stepped up to argue before the Supreme Court of the goddamn United States? I know, right? 
Now, ultimately, the court concluded arguments with no clear sense from the justices as to how they'd come out on the issue of whether or not a fetus was a person under the Constitution. It wouldn't be until the court issued its opinion in January 1973, ultimately affirming a right to an abortion, that it would also declare the 14th Amendment does not apply to the quote-unquote unborn. So for now, a fetus is not a person under the Constitution. But since the court's decision in Roe, anti-choice advocates have been laser-focused on upending that declaration. It's entirely possible we will see the Supreme Court asked to revisit this idea— and that's why it's so important to deepen our understanding of Roe versus Wade today. Absolutely. With a solidly anti-abortion majority of justices currently on the bench, the court very well may declare fetuses, just like corporations, have constitutional rights. OK, I feel like we need a recap because all I know is we started out talking about abortion and now a fetus is a corporation. <laughs> so what happened, Imani? Easy does it, Jess. A fetus isn't actually a corporation, at least not yet. Just kind of like a corporation, more corporation-y than person-y. But a recap is still a good idea, so let's do it. In this episode, we discussed the 14th Amendment and its due process and equal protection guarantees. And we talked about how those guarantees are for persons. But who is a person? The 14th Amendment doesn't say. Texas argued life begins at conception and therefore the quote unquote unborn are people under the Constitution. Texas's attorneys also argued that because the unborn are people under the Constitution, that states have the power to ban abortion as a result. Texas didn't offer any evidence to support this argument, but its attorneys made it anyway. J. Floyd did in 1971, and Robert Flowers really doubled down on it in 1972. Meanwhile, Sarah Weddington said, well, actually, no, a fetus is not a person under the Constitution. And she offered a bunch of examples from other parts of the law and history to show that nobody ever thought a fetus was a person until Texas started making shit up. But the court refused to answer the question of when life begins. And because person remains constitutionally murky, anti-choice advocates have seized on this idea of fetal personhood as the crux of their multi-decade strategy to upend legal abortion, which is coming to a head now, right now, in this present day. That was a great summary, Jess. It Good was. job by us. <laughs> but Imani, let's say that the court were to decide a fetus is a person anyway. Wouldn't that be the end of the entire case? Oh, hell no. Remember earlier, Sarah Weddington was ready for this. Would you lose your case if, a, if the fetus was a person? Then you would have a balancing of interest. Oh, right. So then it's like a battle of rights between the fetus and the pregnant person. I have a feeling those arguments got pretty intense, too. They sure did. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode. The arguments over whose rights should matter most, the alive, breathing pregnant person or the fetus. We'll Hear Arguments is created by Jessica mason Piclo, Amani Gandhi, and Mark Folletti. Jess and Imani write and host the series. Mark produces and edits it for Rewire.News. Production support is provided by Aaron Rand Freeman and Kelly Piclo. Original music is composed by Douglas Helsel. Research support is provided by Joe Constance. We'll Hear Arguments was recorded at Side 3 Studios in Denver, Colorado, with Kyle Smith as our recording engineer. All Supreme Court audio is available from Oye.org under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. 
And finally, a big thank you to everyone at Rewire.News for supporting and promoting We'll Hear Arguments. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.